Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Tim Strong, who's the CEO of Golden Rim Resources, an ASX-listed gold exploration company who are developing a significant value by spearheading the next West African gold rush in its exciting flagship pay-to-gold project in Guinea. Um, Tim is a Campbell School Mines geology graduate and has worked and lived in many countries around the world. I think 70 I, I noticed on his uh, LinkedIn profile. Um, and But most of his work has been in uh, Africa, uh, working for both junior and major mining companies. Um, he's leading Golden Moon Resources, and he's here today to give us an overview of the company and uh, projects that they're developing. So that's welcome, uh, Tim, to the podcast. How are you doing, Tim? I'm great, thanks, Rob. Thank you for having me on the podcast. No, appreciate your time also. Um, as you, as an avid listener, um, who's probably got backed up a lot of episodes that he's uh, waiting to listen to, obviously you know how this works. One thing you can just tell our audience a little bit about your your career, your background, and as I mentioned, you uh, you travel a lot and have lived in various countries. So keen to know a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, definitely. Um... Yeah, look, your, your your podcasts help me on the long flights that uh, happen more and more often these days. So uh, always appreciative of that and the and the good content that comes out of them. Um, so look, as you mentioned, I'm a graduate of the Campbell School of Mines, a geology graduate. Uh, worked as a geologist um, in on actually on all the continents now in in various capacities. But as you said, mostly mostly in Africa, uh, and and within Africa, a lot of the Arabian Nubian Shield uh, and also West Africa, uh, working for small junior companies based out of the UK, as well as some of the bigger companies, including Resolute and Perseus. Um, so you know, really build up my experience, cut my teeth in the field, logged a, logged a lot of core, done a bit of mapping. Um, I've always been, uh, I guess, more on the managerial side of the mining industry. It's what's really enjoyed me, the, the sort of the running of the companies, uh, you know, the, what comes in to the economics of a mining project to make it work, um, as opposed to just the actual geology. Um, a lot of geologists get bogged down in, in you know, finding nice quartz veins that have got, you know, 10 grams per ton in them, but they're, you know, they're very skinny and they only go for 200 meters and that, get, that gets a lot of geologists excited, but economically that's never going to be the, the case. So I've always been interested in, in the next phase of, of things. And um, after, uh, after a few years of being a, a geologist, I, I decided to pursue a, an MBA um, at the University of Dundee. Uh, with the intention of going into the more uh, corporate side of of the mining industry, um, and then actually I, I graduated this year uh, from the MBA, and then uh, ended up being uh, the CEO of Golden Rim. Uh, probably about five months later, I'm pretty sure they're not connected, <laughs> um, but it was just a just a nice coincidence. Um, so yeah, look, traveling a lot. Um, it's it's always been a big passion of of mine, and and people are always sort of ask what made you um, what made you become a geologist, and and actually it was a uh, 
a teacher at, uh, at secondary school of mine who was actually a chemistry teacher. And uh, he, um, he was telling us a story one day how he graduated in, in chemistry and geology from the University of Plymouth. And upon graduation, he was offered a job on the oil rigs in, uh, off the coast of Mexico uh, to work uh, six months on, six months off, uh, a really good salary. Um, you know, so he said, look, I, I work for six months and then the, the other six months I just travel and, and have fun, you know, spending all the money I've earned. And I was like, wow, this, this really sounds like the perfect job for me. So I, I pursued geology and um, I, I actually had the intention of going into the oil and gas um, uh, sort of sector. Um, I ended up going to the Camborne School of Mines and I remember my first day at Camborne, uh, one of the lecturers and his name escapes me now, but he said, if, if any of you are sat here um, and you're interested in oil and gas, you've joined the wrong program. And I sort of sat back in my chair and thinking, damn, I haven't really thought this through, uh, <laughs> thought this through too much. Um, but anyway, you know, like being being based in Cornwall and and having the, the Cornish mining industry, which is having a bit of a renaissance now, right on your doorstep, um, you know, that was within weeks of starting with the courses at Camborne, you know, I was, I was hooked on mining and, and really interested in, in getting into the mining sector. Um, I was fortunate enough between my second and third year for a summer vacation project to go and work with Barrick in Australia. Um, and that was always the plan. Uh, after I finished my, I guess, internship there in Australia, Barrick offered to, to bring me back after graduation. And then we had the big financial crash, which uh, obviously put an end to that. Um, and I thought that was going to be me. I'd fly to Australia, live in Australia, spend the rest of my life there working in the mines in, in Western Australia. Uh, that didn't happen due to the financial crash. And I actually ended up going uh, to work with Barrick and, and Antifagasta on their joint venture in Pakistan. Um, and that really then sparked the uh, the sense of adventure. So uh, after Pakistan went into Africa and you know the, the rest is history. Um, I, I moved uh, across to the United States in uh, 2018. Uh, hope to sort of build my consultancy business in in North America. Um, but as you can see, with uh, with Golden Rim and some of my other consulting projects, uh, I always seem to get drawn back to Africa. So I think one of these things, you know, once, once you've you've cut your teeth in Africa, it's very 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 hard to escape it. Um, and I, I guess, to be honest, I probably wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, there's always that draw to, to come back there. Yeah. Now, interesting to uh, hear your way into the mining industry through your geology teacher. Now, we always say there's not enough people within the industry. And how can we attract more people to the industry? I think we need to start talking to a lot of geology teachers and, and putting that story out there, whether they whether the geology most or probably not many geology teachers would have said exactly what they said to you but that could be the key of getting more people interested in in the sector um before then so. they decide what what course to study yeah look i think so i think there's a real disconnect there between the academia and and the student body um especially in the uk i i follow what's happening in the uk quite a lot and there's a real negative connotation towards mining. Um, it's seen as dirty, uh, environmentally unfriendly. Um, you know, the people, the general population of the UK and, and elsewhere see mining as, as these big filthy holes in the ground that are, you know, killing endangered species and, you know, 
taking up large swaths of the rainforest, etc. And and we know that's not true, right? It's just the the market image, and and that's really the the thing with mining is it does have a really bad public perception. Um, there are people out there trying to change that, but it's not people at the grassroots. It's not people at a level uh, level bringing people in. Like I, I have to admit, even when I was um, studying, going going from my GCSEs to my A levels, uh, geology. Uh, I was fortunate that it was it was offered at my college, but I know a lot of places it isn't. Um, and I actually picked geology because it. I, I was taking biology, chemistry, and geography, so it was just a, a, a nice complement to it. It was it was geog uh, geology or physics, and I didn't fancy the the mathematics side of physics. So, um, but there was no one there saying, "Oh, look, geology is this." There's all these careers that you can go into. The, you know, the, the mining industry is going through a massive shortage of skilled workers, both in the engineering side and the and the geology side. Uh, there was none of that, uh, and now. Uh, you know, kids at, at high school are being told, you know, mining is dirty. We don't need mining anymore. It's, you know, it's, we need to focus on renewable energy. But there's that real big disconnect that to have renewable energy, you need metals. And to get metals, you need mines. Um, so, look, it's it's something that does really need to change. And it, it, it needs to change across all levels, from high school to university and even in early industry. I see a lot of early year you know, recent geology graduates, they don't want to work in the mining industry. They want to go into environmental protection. They want to go into banking. They want to go into, uh, for example, these critical metals associations, right? Without actually, you know, thinking, well, all these things that I'm talking about rely on mining. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a real disconnect. And to be honest, it's, it's one of those things that's really hard to change because it's so ingrained across all, all levels of academia um that you know it needs to be a there needs to be a big push in particularly in countries um where where mining is is large you know, the uk canada or australia there needs to be a drive from governments that says you know, we need mining and it needs to be done properly it needs to be done clean uh, we need to kind of have a I, I guess a green revolution of the mining industry where you know it gets back into we we just need to lose that dirty culture um you know Mining is dirty. Mining is bad. We, and, and to be honest, I, I don't have the answers for that. And you know, I, I think you know, the, there's probably some of your uh, your listeners out there that uh, that will have some opinions, and it would be a great discussion to have. That you know, what what can we do to make it make it better? Um, you know, the the University of Exeter, uh, which Campbell School of Mines is is part of. You know, they they recently paused the the mining engineering degree which, you know, it's terrible. There's not very many mining engineering degrees out there and it was the, the only one left in the UK. And a lot of that, again, was because of the, the public perception of mining. Um, they have brought it back now in, in a slightly different form, um, but they've done nothing to, to change the perspective. Of, you know, they haven't said, look, we, we've revamped this mining engineering program. It, has a, it now has a focus on clean energy and, and, and clean mining methods. They did none of that. They just revamped it in a different format. Um, and that was a really missed opportunity, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, around Obviously, around branding, I think things will change eventually and slow, very, very slowly, like obviously turning, the, turning around the Titanic, because it will come to the realisation that we want all this green revolution. We want everything to be electrified, but it won't be going at the pace of what the government wants. Yeah. And the reason is... 
because they need to mine everything. And yeah. we can't find these critical metals, um, battery metals, commodities, everything. We can't find them and we can't find them quick enough and we can't mine them quick enough. So I yeah. think I think it will be a very, very slow burn. Um, you're not obviously going to change everyone's perceptions, but you can change a good proportion from where it is now. But I think it's going to take years and decades maybe to to change that. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Right. So anyway, let's talk about Golden Room Resources. So I just wonder if you can give our audience an overview of uh, of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Golden Room Resources has been around for years. A lot of people um, will recognize the name. Uh, it's been been around in West Africa for, for many, many years. Um, most uh, most recently in Burkina Faso. Um, we still hold a project in Burkina Faso. It's got uh, 2 million ounces at 1.3 grams per tonne. Uh, unfortunately for us, it's on the eastern uh, side of Burkina, so the security situation is, is pretty bad. Uh, when the security situation started to get a little worse in Burkina, um, the company uh, got to, into a, an earning agreement with a project in Guinea, which has now become our, our flagship project. Um, the project's in the Seguri Basin, which hosts uh, quite a lot of uh, large deposits, uh, the, the biggest of which being uh, Anglo Gold Ashanti's Seguri Mine, uh, with a resource over 10 million ounces to date. Uh, and many of your, your listeners will, will know Predictive Discoveries, who have got uh, 4.2 million ounces at Bankan, that's also in the Seguri Basin. Uh, Hummingbird have the Carissa Mine um, that they're putting into development, also in the Seguri Basin. So there's lots of multi-million ounce uh, deposits in the in the region. Um, we're focusing at, at the moment, at least, purely on uh, oxide gold. Um, we're really fortunate that we've got uh, 120 to 150 meters of oxide uh, from the surface, which is which is a considerable uh, oxide profile. You know, normally in West Africa, you get 50, 60 meters. So we're looking at double that. Um, um, we've got a small resource so far. We've got 930,000 ounces at uh, at 1.1. Um, that's being, uh, being expanded right now. Um, we're currently drilling 10,000 meters of RC drilling and, uh, we're just about to start this week, uh, 3,500 meters of diamond drilling. Um, so that we've got, uh, two, two main projects at, at Cardo. We've got the Masan where the, where the resource is. Um, and then we've got a new project called Berico where we're actually getting some, uh, some much higher grade, uh, results. Uh, compared to what we've got in the mineral resource. So, um, you know, we're, as I said, we're focusing really on the oxide um, and we're doing that mo mostly because it's uh, it's easy to mine and it's easy to process. So you think of the oxide, it's almost like soil. Um, so it's uh, it's easy to mine, free dig. There's no drill and ballast, which keeps your, keeps your mining costs down. Uh, we've done some initial met work and we're getting 95 to 97% recoveries uh, in, in leaching, which is, which is really fantastic. Um, so, you know, we're really trying just to build up that resource base and, and, and ounces. And what we see geologically is very similar to what Anglo Gold Ashanti have at Seguri. So they, they've got multiple oxide pits um, along the trend of, of their mineralized belt. We're on the same mineralized belt. We have uh, 15 kilometers of it. Um, our resource covers one kilometer. Uh, so we're just exploring that, that other 14 kilometers to see just, you know, how many ounces we, we can get in the bank. And then, you know, the northern part of our uh, prospect um, is an area called Berico, 
Um, and we're getting um, much, much higher grades there, including, you know, six meters at six grams, six meters at three and a half grams, five meters at two grams, five meters at three grams. This is a much more traditional uh, West African style system, all in oxide still. Um, but yeah, look, it's it's developing into a really exciting story. Um, I think, you know, by the end of the drill season, you know, drilling will finish probably in May or June this year. Uh, we'll probably be able to pump out two uh, two mineral resource updates. Uh, one for Massan, so we'll expand on that nine hundred and thirty thousand ounces, uh, and then a new one at Berico, uh, and hopefully that will get everyone excited. I mean, the market sentiment right now they they see the company as having you know one million ounce at one gram in oxide, um, and it doesn't get anyone very excited, especially when you've got people like B two and and Barrick running around the place saying, "Oh no, we need." at least 2 million at two, um, you know, so a lot of the retail investors look at us and see 1 million at one and, and they don't see the bigger picture. So hopefully by the, by the summer, um, we will really have got the opportunity to show the market that we are a serious, serious deal um, and, and expand on those and get as many ounces in the inventory. Uh, and I really do think that this will be uh, Guinea, uh, Guinea's and if, if not West Africa's next big uh, gold discovery. Um, you recently, uh, had a recent capital raise. Um, so I just wondering if you can just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. Look, we just raised 8.3 million um, in, a, in a combination of a, a brokered placement, um, a rights issue, and then a shortfall from that rights issue. Um, really, really well supported uh, by our current shareholders, uh, some of whom have been with the company for a long, long time. So I think that just shows that, you know, we've got support behind us. We've got people that believe in the project um also got quite a few uh new shareholders which was which was really nice people that are starting to realize the story um people that are you know, interested in guinea interested in gold um we recently brought on uh doug jones uh who is the uh, ex uh, group exploration manager for perseus so he's brought a lot of support with him as well there's there's obviously people that have followed me into the company after i joined in october last year um just yeah really well supported i think um the rights issue which is which is offered to to current shareholders for them to top up on on the shares that they hold uh, i think we filled 63% of that which is really high for a rights issue um and then um our brokers managed to to fill the shortfall in in a matter of hours so it was really um, a really exciting time for us and it really showed the the support that we've got both in Australia and the UK. We've we've got quite a lot of British investors in in on us as well. And to be honest, look, raising eight point three million in, in the current market is is quite a quite a good feat. Um you know, I think I think that's exciting and I think it's it's showing um, where the market's going. I mean, we we discussed this in Darba, where you know everyone's everyone's getting cash right now and, and doing these large programs. So I think it's it shows the market sentiment is it's not quite back there yet, but it, it's definitely on the way the way up. And I think you know a lot of companies in the next 12, 18 months are going to have a lot of success, especially in the gold space. Yeah, and what's the sort of plan of action in terms of spending spending that money and how you're going to allocate it? Yeah, look, we've already spent a good good chunk of it on this drilling that we've been uh, we've been doing since December. Uh, we're going to keep drilling. The results, you know, uh, we're releasing results every week right now, and they're you know they're exceeding our expectations. Um, we the the RC rig has stopped drilling right now. Whilst we get, we've got about forty two holes uh, that we're waiting for results on. 
Um, so we've stopped the rig right now uh, just so that we can get those results back and re-strategize uh, what we want to do is just make sure that we're, we're putting meters in the right place. Um, so we're going to expand the, the, the RC program. Um, we've done 8,000 of the 10,000 so far. I'll probably try and squeeze a few thousand meters extra. Same with the diamond. We've got 3,500 meters planned and budgeted, um, but I'll probably try and squeeze a few more. Um, and then, you know, outside of the Massan and Berico area, we've we've got other targets that uh, have got auger anomalies or geophysics anomalies that we need to follow up. So we'll probably do around 5,000, 6,000 meters of air core drilling as well, uh, which wasn't uh, planned. But as you know, as we've got the cash in the bank, um, you know, we will uh, will sort of utilize that with with some of those earlier stage techniques. Uh, and then obviously the mineral resource updates um, at the end of Q2. Uh, we'll burn some of that cash. And then in the summer, you know, we're going to strategize. We're going to have to look at this project and say, look, do we have as uh, have as many ounces as we're going to get? And therefore, do we move to scoping study or, you know, are the are there more ounces to be found? Um, and, you know, we do some more exploration drilling. I think basically um, we've got cash in the bank that gets us through to the almost the end of the year, which is which is pretty good position to be in. Um. Talking obviously about Guinea, what, what's the mining um, environment like in Guinea? Um, obviously, from a, a security risk, you're obviously pretty close to proximity to Mali and Burkina Faso. So what's the security like in and around Guinea? Yeah, look, I mean, Guinea at the moment is pretty good um, in terms of, I mean, the two biggest risks in, in Guinea are, are this influx of, of jihadist terrorists that you're seeing in, in Mali and Burkina. And I'll go back to that. Uh, and, and also uh, coups within the government. Guinea's had uh, two or three coups in the last couple of years. Um, they're what I call good coups. You know, they're, they're bloodless. They, they've been um, pretty, pretty stable. Um, in, in terms of the government, I think the government right now is pretty stable. Um, it's very mining friendly. The uh, the new president of Guinea, uh, Colonel Dumbaya, he is um, he's very pro mining. He he attended a mining conference in in Conakry a, a few weeks ago and uh, sort of said, you know, Guinea is open for mining. We we want we enjoy having you here. We want you all here. We want you to start your mines, uh, which is a real real positive. Um, there's a new mining minister who uh, seems to be signing licenses again. Um, there was a situation uh, which is very common in West Africa with the bureaucracy that, you know, four or five hundred license applications or renewals are just sat on someone's desk not being signed. Um, I've I've heard that they are now being signed. So it looks like the new mining minister is is pushing things forward. Um, and, and remember, uh, Guinea is not new to mining. Guinea is the, the third largest exporter of bauxite. Um, and mining, uh, I think, accounts for around 26% of, of Guinea's GDP. So it, they understand mining and, and they understand how important mining is to the local economy. Um, and I think, you know, whilst things often get stored in bureaucracy, I think the current, um, the current government is, is trying to change that and is, is being very forward with mining. So I think from a government point of view, um, Guinea is probably one of the better jurisdictions in West Africa. Um, could another coup happen next week? Of course. I mean, that's that's just that's just jurisdictional risk of of working in West Africa. But I, I don't think so. I think the the new government has been well received by the general population, um, and I think things uh, are, are going to stay pretty steady uh, for the time being. 
Um, in terms of, of security risk, uh, obviously, I mentioned earlier that we have a project in Burkina Faso, um, the Cori project uh, that is currently on care and maintenance due to these, these terrorist issues. Um, the same issues that are, are happening in Niger and, and Burkina and Mali, um, I mean, they're not getting better. Let's let's be honest. I, I would say they're getting worse uh, on a week by week basis. Um, you know, the the French have have recently left Mali or are in the process of leaving Mali. They've been replaced by Russia's Wagner Group, uh, which isn't good for anyone. Uh, and since that transition has has happened, I've seen a, a considerable uh, increase in in terrorist activity in in Mali, especially. Uh, we monitor the situation pretty pretty closely because we bring our personnel through Bamako um, and then down into Guinea. Uh, fortunately for us, that area between Bamako and, and Suguri and Guinea is one of the only places that the French deem uh, orange on their on their map as opposed to red. Um, but look, I I'm under no illusions that that's going to change. I think it's going to get worse. Um, I, I see in the next 12 to 18 months that the whole of Burkina Faso and the whole of whole of Mali is going to be basically off off limits. Um, and the same will be said for, for Mar parts of Mauritania. Now, as you move further west with, with Senegal and Guinea, I, I don't think they're going to get dragged in uh, to, to this. I, I don't, the, the way that the cultural dynamic works and, and the local tribal groups and, uh, and the way that they're distributed both in Senegal and Guinea, um, I, I think, you know, they won't, have the same effect. I don't. I don't think it's going to cross over into the border. And if it does, it would be minor, minor things. Um, I mean, this, the same can be said for for the Ivory Coast. You know, the majority of the Ivory Coast is pretty safe, but you know, obviously, you, you always have to watch that northern border um, of the Ivory Coast with with Mali and Burkina, and they've had problems in the past. And uh, I mean, fortunately, um, you know, the Ivory Coast is extremely well backed up by the French. French have got a lot of business uh, interest in, in the Ivory Coast. So they, it's uh, it's in their best interest to protect um, protect the country. Um, whereas in, in Mali and Burkina Faso, uh, everyone seems to have just given up. Um, so it's becoming a bit of a free-for-all. And, and obviously having the Russians involved is is never good for anyone, um, especially paid, paid to protect Russians. Um, we uh, I'm sure we've all heard horror stories and uh, I don't think that's going to change. Uh, but but, you know, in short, from a from a security point of view, I think Guinea and, and Senegal are, are probably on the safer end of the spectrum. Um, there may be some isolated uh, events, but I, you know, I think probably jurisdictional wise, both those countries are, are probably where I would want to be in West Africa right now. Yeah. And what would you say the answer is to reducing some of this? some of this um, terrorism or making it obviously the security at a lower risk. I mean, what, what, what would you say is the answer? Obviously you've been in the country and surrounding countries for, for a while now. Um, yeah. What, what, what's the answer? I mean, the answer is strong governance, right? The, they need people running the countries that know what they're doing. Uh, both Mali and Burkina Faso are run by military colonels or, and Guinea as well, to be fair. Um, and most of these guys, you know, they, they have very little education. They, they come from a, a warfare background. Um, you know, they're not adapted to running a country. Um, you know, they don't have people's best interest um, at, at heart, I guess, would be, the, would be the best way to say it. And, they, you know, whilst they can strategize on the battlefield probably pretty well, 
um, you know, that's very different to running a country. Um, and, and that's not going to change until there are democratically elected civilian officials running a country. It, it's going to be very difficult for that to change. Um, and, you know, it obviously goes back even further than that, you know, in terms of the country's development. There needs to be ground, the you know, grassroots development of these countries. There needs to be taxation, you know, enforced taxation there. And of course, corruption is also a big thing. You know, the, these guys that are at the top, they, as long as they're getting their pockets lined, they don't really worry about what's happening. You know, as long as they're safe and they're getting money in their pockets, and I'm not necessarily talking about the president and, and that, but even everyone down, the ministers, the under ministers, the, the sous-prefets of the villages, as long as they're doing well, you know, there's, there's no, um, I, I feel there's no desire to develop these places as long as the people in power are, are fine. Yeah, I understand. Um, something you've raised uh, when we've had conversations in the past uh, around age bias in mining, um, the need for younger people in, to sort of get in senior positions. Um, you've obviously demonstrated that being a CEO at a relatively young age compared to probably many of your peers. Um, what's your take and advice around, around this? Um, and... Obviously, it's plain to see why uh, it's plain to see that many of the older generation are leaving the industry or soon will be leaving the industry over the coming years. And they're going to be obviously taking a lot of experience away with them. Um, so, yeah, what, what's your what's your thoughts around obviously younger people giving the chance to get into more senior positions? Yeah, look, it's something that I'm I'm quite passionate about. I, I've encountered ageism throughout my career um both when i was a you know junior geologist senior geologist you know uh right up to now being being a ceo um i, I would say you know ageism is is a real big issue in the mining industry and it does put people off um you know i've i've spoken to candidates for for what would be quite senior geological roles and they've sort of they, they've even said to me oh I don't, I don't know if i've got enough experience for this um, because they've been told previously by older members of staff that they don't have the, the experience. Um, look, it, it's a twofold thing. So you, you mentioned that older people are, are leaving the industry and these guys have got the wisdom. You know, there's a common saying in geology, the geologist that's seen the most rocks is the best geologist. Whilst there is some truth to that, the, the industry is multifaceted, right? So it's not just the, the amount of rocks you've seen. Um, it's what you do with that information that becomes really important. So you've got these these older guys that are leaving the industry. Um, and, and I would say they've had a tradition of not necessarily always passing on their knowledge. Um, I've worked in companies previously where the, the older people see the younger people coming in, chomping at the bit, uh, and there's been a bit of job preservation. So you know, they'll drip feed you a little bit of information, um, but not, not enough to take over their role. Um, that's not true for everyone. There are a lot of good mentors out there and there are a lot of good consultants that are very happy to share their knowledge. Um, but the, the other side of it is a lot of the older generation, I, I find, struggle to adapt to new technologies and new thinking. And that's really what I champion for when, when I bring in younger people. You're bringing in new knowledge, new technology. We're not working in the 90s, right? We, we have the best software now. We have the best logging tools. We have the, the best technology, you know, nowadays you can take a photo of the core and the, and the, the machine will log it for you, right? 
which of course is not what we want. We want geologists also to put their uh, put their knowledge in. But with that as an extra tool, that gives the geologist so much extra information to use and interpret almost immediately. Um, I, I also find that the older generation uh, tend to to want to make things hard on, on younger geologists. They say, well, you know, back in the 80s, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have this. We stayed in a tent for six months. There's no need for that these days. You know, there's no need to make it rough. You, you don't have to be eating uh, rice and stringy chicken every day. You know, the, <laughs> you, know you, you can have good food in the camp. You can have a bed. You don't have to sleep on the floor. Uh, so there's that, that general old-fashioned feeling, which I think is actually detrimental to a lot of companies. Um, yeah, I think there's a, in some of the older generation, there's a, what's the best word to use? There's a reluctance to adopt new technologies. Uh, we're seeing a lot of, of work with AI now, for example. And, you know, even, even myself, I'm sort of like, Oof, AI, uh, I'm not sure how I feel comfortable about this. Uh, it's just chucking out results. Doesn't, there's, we don't like the black box, right? Um, so I, I'm starting to see it now as if I'm almost becoming in the older generation. Um, but I, I really find that younger people have A, access to that technology, B, the knowledge to use that technology, and C, just new thinking for the, for the current world situation. Um, and I, I think that it doesn't get used enough. Um, it, it does go back to the fact that, you know, the, the best geologist is the one that sees the most rocks, but you'll understand, you know, working in recruitment that not every geology job requires you to be a geologist all the time. Once you move to a senior geologist position, you do a lot of extra stuff, right? Camp management, uh, human resources, budgeting, planning, you know, you, you use a, a, a lot of those, uh, that geological element actually sadly for for most people uh, goes out of the window um and and i think what sometimes people think is some of these younger guys oh they're not the best geologist or you know they they haven't seen that many rocks or they don't really know what they're talking about geologically that doesn't necessarily matter if they've got people skills and, and management skills um you know I, I definitely fall into that category i'm sure if you if you spoke to a lot of my peers and, and asked them yeah, how, how do you rank Tim as a geologist out of 10? Uh, you know, I'd probably struggle to be, uh, be above five. Um, but what I did have is skills in management, you know, uh, personnel management, camp management, budgeting. Um, and that's what really helped me move up through, through the ranks quite quickly, um, as opposed to, to, to working on the coalface, so to speak. Uh, and what I would say to to a lot of younger geologists is don't worry. Like if, if you get into geology, you obviously still have to learn about the rocks. You still have to learn about the deposit types. But if you find that, you know, you're not enamored by the, the mineralogy and, and the, the ore forming processes, don't worry. If, if, you're, if you're good at exploration management and that's where you want to go, proceed with that. You know, and, and companies will, I think especially with the skills shortage, which is coming again with the older generation leaving. And there's not, you know, between my generation and the older guys, there's, there's not much in there. So there is going to be a need in the, in the coming years for these, these younger guys to, to step up and become exploration managers, even if they don't you know, have 10, 15 years of, of actual you know, mapping experience. Um, so I think you know, what, I, what I'd say to younger people is like, yeah, look, if geology is not your full bag, if you're interested in, in the other side of mining, proceed with it. You know, I, I've done it. Some of my friends have done it. Um, you know, I've seen seen a lot of people 
go go the same route as as I have. And you know, it's definitely doable. And you don't have to to sit and struggle through geology and, and become a top structural geologist if that's not your thing. There are there are plenty of other jobs in, in geology in, in the exploration industry. Yeah. No, and I, I 100% agree with everything that you said there. Um, what you tend to find is obviously people fall into two categories. They're either very technical or they're very management, which is what you're explaining. You tend not to get too many that are great at both. So you yep. you take a, you see, seem to take a path either way. So um, that's well, I, I um, agree with exactly what you've said. What I was going to then move on to is obviously you then start uh, studied a master's. Do you feel that has helped develop your career? And do you think it's essential to study a master's? Um, maybe once you've already been in the industry for a period of time, do you think it's beneficial to study a master's if you were looking to get further up the the, the corporate ladder? Look, I think so. I think it always helps. You know, people shouldn't stop learning. You know, I'm always trying to to make sure I'm learning something, whether it's involved with mining or you know, you know, being a being a recent CEO, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting my head around financial statements and, and that side of things and business law, et cetera. So, you know, I'm always learning and I would always, you know, implore people to, to make sure that they're always learning. Is a master's necessary? No. Um, is a master's useful? Absolutely. Um, I, I toyed with the idea of a master's for a long time. Um, and I searched, you know, economic geology, geology, geostatistics, and, and nothing really took me. Because I sort of said to myself, okay, I'm already working in industry. I'm already learning skills on the ground. What is a further geology degree going to give me that I can't learn on the ground? I guess I was a little arrogant at that, that point. Um, and actually what I ended up doing is obviously an MBA. Um, and, and I think that has actually really helped me because it's broadened my perspective on the mining industry. You know, yes, of course, geology is core, but there's all this stuff that surrounds it. But it's also just as important. You know, you, you can't run a mine without an, an accountant, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, you, you have all those those pieces. So I think what I would say to people is, whilst it's not necessary, it's really good just to keep learning and and maybe do study something that's out of your comfort zone, finance, an MBA, or, or even, you know, the more economic side of geology. You know, there's, there's a lot more to geology than looking through a microscope. Or, or a hand lens looking at the rocks, right? You know, the economic geology is is really what makes the mines. So there are a few economic geology courses out there, particularly in South Africa and, and Australia, that, you know, will give you that wealth of wealth of knowledge. Um, you know, I see a lot of geologists nowadays also doing mining engineering degrees, for example. Uh, and I think that it, it just adds that extra depth to you. You know, like if I get a candidate that comes across my desk that's, you know, a, a dual engineering geology uh, graduate, fantastic. You, you say, look, this this person understands the economic. You know, they they're not just an you know an academic geologist, which you know they have their place. But you need people on the ground that understand. As we said earlier, if they find this two hundred meter long vein with a with a great grab sample, they know, okay, this this isn't going to cut it as a mine. Let's not put too much money here, right? So look, I, I think yeah, keep keep learning. Um, but you know, don't be scared to go out of the comfort zone uh, or learn something outside of geology. Um, you know, I think it, it's very important to to have a wide breadth of skills. Um, we also um, can talk about skill shortages, um, which I obviously I uh, 
I do mention quite a lot on, on LinkedIn and have done in the past, um, especially skill shortages in sort of mid-level positions. Um, obviously, there, there seems to be lost less ex, uh, expat geologists um, and the strategy for promoting, and we'll be looking at Africa, promoting African geologists. How do you sort of see playing this playing out over the coming years? Um, and what would you like to see companies doing to promote uh, local African geologists? Yeah, look, it's it's a hot topic um, and it's one that's extremely important. Um, you know, for me, I, I've had the pleasure to work with some absolutely fantastic African geologists. Um, I've also worked with a lot of African geologists that aren't that good. Uh, on the on the flip side, I've worked with a lot of British geologists that are very good, and I've also worked with British geologists that aren't very good. Um, so I, I think what it it comes down to is mentorship and um, and nurturing the the African geologists. You have to understand as an expatriate that a lot of the African geologists won't have the same level of education as you. Um, you know, the the University of Bamako, for example, is not in the same teaching level as the University of Exeter. Um, I think people understand that. And uh, I think uh, a lot of the African geologists understand that. Well, that's why a lot of them go to, to Paris or Belgium for, for their master's degrees, because they understand that the European education puts them in a better standing. Um, I, I was fortunate when I uh, worked at Resolute um, at Sayama. I was a senior geologist for, for near mine exploration. Uh, and I had a, a good amount of national staff underneath me. And, and one of my key performance indicators was training up one of those to take my job when I left. Um, and that doesn't happen in a lot of companies. And, and I feel that doesn't happen a lot in the companies because of job preservation. A lot of expats come into the country and think, well, look, if I train this, this local guy up to do my job, I'm going to be out of the job. Right. So that attitude needs to change. You know, I, I, people often look at my CV and they say, I, Tim, you've switched around jobs. You just spent a year and a half here, two years here, two years here. That's actually a good thing. That's given me the experience of many different deposits, many different deposit types, working with different teams. Um, you know, that's actually built my knowledge. That, that still gets frowned upon, right? Um, people say, oh, you, you, know, you should join the company at 21 and stay there until you're 50. Um, I, I disagree. I don't, I don't think that's, that's a good thing. So having that sort of rotation between jobs, and I know some companies do this. Uh, First Quantum, for example, uh, keep you in a in a position for two or three years, and then they make you go to another another one of their sites. So they keep you within the company, but they they move you around, and that's, this is fantastic. Uh, and we're starting to see this with uh, with national staff as well. So you build them up to a senior level. Um, they they've been mentored, they've been trained. Maybe the company will pay for them to have a master's degree. Uh, and then when the company has a different project in a different country, um, you, you can transplant them. So they, then they start to get international experience. And this is really where they, uh, where they thrive. Um, one of the issues with, with national geologists is you know, they, they work in their own country. Uh, it, it just becomes a daily grind, right? They, they get excited to travel. They become expats, right? Um, and th there are a few companies that are doing, doing this, um, you know, Perseus, for example, um, you know, they have Ghanaian geologists that are working in the Ivory Coast, working in Sudan, and it's great. Those, those Ghanaian senior geologists have now become, you know, that level of the same as expats. So, you know, they could come, come across and, uh, and work in any country. It's the, the same for, for us at Golden Rim. Um, some of our team members are from Burkina Faso. 
we we built them up we trained them on our project in Burkina, and then when we closed that project down we we've transplanted them to guinea and now they are transferring those skills to the guinean geologist um who one day should uh should golden rim pick a project somewhere else could possibly come with us to to that project so it's all about uh you know building up their skill set and mentoring them and, and i've always found that national staff are very open to be mentoring they love to learn right they absolutely love to learn um i used to enjoy having having the local staff come into the office and ask questions even if it takes two or three hours you know i'm, I'm more than happy to sit down teach them listen to their ideas and often, to be honest, if if you're an expat in Africa, you tend to be in a more senior position. The guys, the local guys and girls, tend to um, tend to see more rocks than you, right? So they often can come with you with these insights and can get a light bulb going in your head to say, "Oh, we didn't notice that," and it can actually change your geological interpretation. Um, I think one thing that should be noted is that this is the way it's going to go. African staff are going to work on the African continent. You're going to see that expats are going to be slowly phased out. One thing I would caution is that can't happen too quickly. You need to ensure that the national staff are trained and mentored correctly to a good enough level um, where that you know you can run things smoothly. So, for example, um, at Golden Rim, our, our whole in-country team are, are African. Uh, we don't have any expats there currently. Uh, and it runs like clockwork. Uh, we've we've got excellent people working there. Um, happy to mentor their their other local staff. Um, so we've we've got really a, an education mill going on. So we've got senior people that we've trained. They're now training other people, and they will then go on to train other people. And I think that's the the real key. Um, I, I don't agree with companies that just use national geologists as a as another pair of hands. Um, I think all companies should be investing in their local staff, whether that's sending them on training courses or just training them on site. Um, every company should have that training program in, in place. Even if you're a very small company with, with five people, you should still, um, you should still have that in place. And, and I think a lot of companies are aware of this now. Um, obviously there's, there's cost implications of, of national staff over expats. Um, you know, especially a, a company like Golden Rim, where, you know, we would probably be employing people out of Australia. Australia is a long way through Guinea, takes time, costs a lot of money. Yeah, it makes financial sense for us to be training up good local staff and, and using fully local staff. And, and it's good for your, uh, your sort of ESG, right, to be A, training up local staff and B, employing more local people. You know, for every expat that you get rid of, you can employ a, a local member of staff. And that's that's only that can only be good for the, for the country. Do you think there's enough companies in Africa men training and mentoring their, um, their employees and local employees to become expats? Like you mentioned, obviously expats going to obviously certain countries, certain companies and, and want to stay there for as long as possible and not train their, train someone to take over their role. So do you think a, a lot of companies are behind the eight ball on that in Africa. And I suppose I'm very generally speaking. And then second part of that question, you mentioned obviously your your particular company and your training program. Is there certain is there a certain structure to your training program to develop these to develop these um, less experienced engineers to to make them better? Just so obviously anyone that's listening may give them a few ideas as to what they can do and implement within their business. 
Yeah, look, from your from your first question, no, not enough companies are doing it. Um, some of the bigger companies are doing it, and and obviously Rand Gold before they became Barrick were r- real champions uh, for this. They were they were very keen on having full fully nationalized run mines, um, and they did very well. Um, they they've had a few slip ups along the way. Um, Perseus, Resolute, a lot of the mid tier and major companies are doing this. They they are ahead of the game. The smaller companies, um, I don't think so. Uh, I would say the majority are are not. Um, they tend to get lucky and get well-trained local staff that have come from Barrick or come from Perseus um, as opposed to, to building them up themselves. Um, and I, I guess that comes on to your second question. Like, do we have any structure in place? Like, we don't. Uh, uh, you know, we're a small company. Um, you know, geology comes first. Uh, but we're fortunate that the staff that we do have on site take the training very seriously. So they sort of taken it upon themselves. Uh, what would I suggest for other junior companies? Definitely have a structure in place, have a succession plan. You know, we've, we've got older members of staff that will retire at some point. You know, we need to make sure that, especially the senior ones, that they, there is a succession plan in place and they need to know that and they need to be on board with that. It's a really important thing. And, And this comes back, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, don't want to train the people below them because of job preservation. That attitude needs to go. Um, and, and we need to say, okay, look, you're going to be at this company for four or five years. Great. What happens when you leave? We would rather hire someone from below you and bring them up than bring someone in from, from the external. Because of course, if, if someone junior gets promoted internally, they've already got all the knowledge of the project. You're not bringing someone new in that doesn't know anything about the project and you re- have to you know, retrain them. So I would say, look, any company, it doesn't matter what size you are, it doesn't matter if you've got four or five people, um, you know, you should have a succession plan in place. And, and that starts on day one. You know, make sure any member of staff you, you bring on, they have a clear path up through the company, should they want it. And I suppose with geologists that have that mindset where... They're working within an organisation. Um, they they want to be there as long as that as long as possible. Now, is it because they think that they can't get another job because there isn't the jobs out there? Is that is that the reason why they have that mentality? Is it because they've got a nice cushy job that they don't want to leave? Um, what 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 do you think is behind that mentality? And I suppose again, moving on from that question, I suppose the exploration industry has been underinvested uh, over over many years. Um, and I think that's obviously changing changing now. So I'd imagine there will be jobs for everyone within exploration, even at that expat level. So that job security shouldn't be much of an issue because I imagine there's going to be jobs, whether that's in Africa or whether it's any other continents. I think there'll be jobs for senior expat exploration people anywhere around the world yeah look and i think rob you answered your own question there a little bit because i mean that that's what happens people get comfortable and you know everyone in the mining industry especially the exploration industry understands that it's uh, it's a cyclic industry right so if you're onto a good thing you're comfortable you like the country you're working in you're getting paid well you're going to try and sit there as long as possible because you never know when the next downturn's going to come uh, and you want to make sure that you are invaluable to that company so that comes also that you know you don't necessarily want to train someone below you because that makes you expendable. If you have all the knowledge in your head, even in the tough times, it makes it very hard for a company to say, oh, okay, we've got to cut you. 
right? So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people that keep all their job to themselves and make sure you're, I know everything. There's no way the company can get, get rid of me. And the, that attitude is changing slightly, but it, it's certainly there. And it does come from that sort of cyclic uh, mentality of the industry. Uh, people you know, say, okay, well, look, make myself invaluable so that you know, when the downturn comes, I'm still going to have a job because they'd be stupid to get rid of me. Um, yeah, it's it's the same uh, across Africa, across North America. Yeah, the, the mentality here in North America is a little bit different because people do still have career geology jobs. Like if you join Freeport or Barrick, uh, you know, here in here in the US, you would you probably stay there your whole career. That's obviously different on on the African continent. Even if you join Barrick, you're probably not going to stay there for for years and years. Um, so the, the attitude is changing. Um, and obviously now people have realized that sometimes if you switch jobs, you can make more money, especially in the good times. Um, so that, that is changing a little bit. And I, I see that a lot with local staff. Uh, as soon as a new, new exploration company comes into a country, you get flooded with CVs. Uh, and sometimes you look at these CVs and say, wait, you're already working for the biggest company in the country. What, why do you want to jump ship and work with, with me? And it, it's that mentality that they can get more money by uh by switching switching companies uh, and that's really what i'm seeing now is you do still have those people that sit in their cushy jobs and, and just lock themselves down and stay there but you're also getting these people that jump because they know uh that that money is is more money is available the more you switch around um and and that's to some extent and you'll you'll know this better than i do that is true but you it's a tough balance between jumping around too often and having that salary. I mean, look, I, most of my positions have been, you know, two years, two and a half years, and, and people still question my CV and they say, oh, you, you jump around a lot. I actually don't think I do. Um, but if, you know, and I have to admit, when I look at people's CVs and I see every six months they've, they've jumped around, it, it becomes a bit of a red flag, right? You sort of say, well, are they, do they not get on with people? You know, are they not comfortable working in those sort of environments? Are they just not good at their job? It does become a bit of a, a red flag. Um, but with the caveat that, you know, a lot of roles in, in mining and exploration, particularly are, are short contract roles. Uh, you know, I've done a few uh, four to six months, month contracts and, you know, that's just purely because they needed someone for a drill program or they needed something for a specific job. So you have to be careful when you're reviewing people's CVs uh, as to why they're jumping around. But I, I certainly have my eyes open uh, looking at where people have worked, how long they've worked there and sort of think, oh, are they just jumping around to make more money? Yeah, certainly. I'm going to slowly wrap up. So I've got a couple more questions. What's the outlook for Golden Rim resources for the remainder of this year? Well, look, uh, as I mentioned before, we're getting some very exciting results. Uh, we've, we've cashed up money in the bank, good to go. Uh, I think we're going to have a very exciting uh, couple of months. Uh, a couple of new mineral resources coming out in, in probably June, July. Uh, then, you know, a strategy session during the summer, uh, during the rainy season in Guinea, see what we can, uh, what, what the next step for us is, whether we go down that development route or continue exploration. Uh, and then, you know, as soon as the rain stop in October, hit hit the button again and get, get straight back out in the fields. And lastly, just wonder if there's anything else that you want to uh, add or share with our audience. Obviously, uh, audience are all over the world, all different levels from recent graduates to very experienced, obviously, CEOs. 
Um, just wondering if, you, if, you, if you've got any uh, final uh, or closing comments. I'm sure people are probably sick of my uh, <laughs> sick of my voice by now. But no, look, particularly for your younger listeners, I'd look just just strive for what you want to do. Um, you know, if you want to go into management, you can do it. Um, you know, the, there are pathways out there. I would say the best thing you can do in your career is surround yourself with good people, people that want to invest in you, people that want to mentor you, people that want you to be the best version of yourself. That's that's really the the key thing. And I guess to the older listeners, I'd say don't don't write off younger geologists because they're young. You know, I, I've worked with geologists that have got one, two, three years experience that are vastly more experienced than those that have got 10 years plus just because of the way they approach the industry. Yeah. Tim, really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing your insights and telling us about Golden Rim uh, resources. I'm really interested in this uh, episode and um, you've gave a lot of information there to to not just junior miners or junior graduates, I'll say, but obviously experienced uh, mining professionals. So um, really appreciate your time. If our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions about Golden Rim, how can they go about doing that? What social media channels are you on? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you probably see my name pop up all over the place. Feel free to connect, send questions. Um, email is tim at goldenrim.com.au. Again, always happy to, to answer questions. I'm I always uh, happy to mentor junior geologists too. Uh, answer any questions you have help help you out get your get your foot in the door so to speak um give you any advice that that you want um i'm also on twitter timothy strong 88 um but yeah reach out whatever whatever platform you wish just uh yeah my inbox is always open yeah great we we include those in the show notes so uh hopefully or not maybe hope not hopefully you'll get a load of flood of graduates uh Get, uh, taking up your time but as you said you're, you're happy to provide some some of your time to, to help uh, less experienced geologists so Tim like I said really appreciate your time thank you for listening um, there's a lot of lot to take away from this episode um, like I said whether you're a graduate geologist or whether you're a very experienced CEO um, there's a lot of golden nuggets to take away and, and I appreciate all your continued support please share this episode with um, others within the mining industry but also people outside of the mining industry maybe some geology teachers this might be have to uh, get in front of um, to get people into the industry so like i said really appreciate your continued support and until next time happy mining thank you for listening remember to reach out to rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review until next time happy mining helping each other to improve the mining industry.